Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode from our centenary series exploring 100 ideas in genetics, we're uprooting the tree of life, asking whether we should believe our eyes or our sequencing machines when it comes to deciding what makes a species. Plus, the greatest comebacks of all time. We look at the science of de-extinction and find out whether Jurassic Park could ever become a reality. Before we start, just a reminder that you can find us on Twitter at GeneticsUnzip or by email podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. We know you're listening all over the world, so do come say hi. Also, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if that's how you're listening. Or you could just tell a friend, send out a tweet, ping it over in an email or tell them about the podcast in the pub. It all helps more people to discover the show. Flip open any biology textbook and you'll probably see a typical tree of life. A family tree-like diagram showing the relationships between species as they've evolved and diverged from a common ancestor. Perhaps the most famous example is from Charles Darwin himself, who first sketched out a small spidery tree, explaining the evolutionary relationships between species back in 1837, labelled with the immortal words, I think... Scientists have been drawing and redrawing the tree of life for hundreds of years based on observed similarities and differences between species. Advances in DNA sequencing now allow us to analyse genetic relationships between species, refining these trees with ever greater depth and accuracy and adding in more and more branches and a trunk that stretches all the way back to the beginning of life on Earth some four billion or so years ago. But rather than making things clearer... All this information has turned Darwin's simple tree into a thorny, tangled thicket and raises questions about what it even means to be a species. So, how did we get here? To find out, we need to take a trip back to the 18th century to meet Carl Linnaeus, the father of taxonomy. Born in 1707, Linnaeus was a Swedish botanist, zoologist and physician who was obsessed with collecting, identifying, naming and classifying organisms into different species. He had a particular love for plants. The more exotic, the better. But rather than taking to the ocean waves himself to indulge this passion, his furthest expedition was to Lapland, and he never left Sweden after the age of 30, Linnaeus sent his students to travel abroad and collect specimens to send back to him. He dubbed these botanical adventurers his apostles, which fitted well with his apparently high opinion of himself as the self-styled Prince of Botany. As it turns out, martyrs might have been a better name for this unlucky crew, as seven of them died during their travels. Thanks to his army of apostles, word soon started to spread about their plant-loving professor and his interest in collection and classification. Thousands of specimens started flooding in from around the globe, causing Linnaeus to complain that he was working night and day, hatching new species like a hen hatching her eggs. Struggling with the information overload, he had to come up with a way of organising all these species in a way that made sense and captured the relationships between them. But rather than a tree, his first attempt at cataloguing life was a table. Linnaeus' Systema Naturae, published in 1753, consisted of three tables, one for animals, one for plants, and one for minerals. 
he then used columns and rows to group similar organisms. As he and his apostles gathered more and more specimens, the tables had to be expanded, redrawn and republished. Some species were also reclassified as Linnaeus learned more about them. For example, whales and manatees were classified as fish in the first edition, but later moved to the mammal section. By the 12th edition, published in 1770, just eight years before Linnaeus's death, the Systema naturae contained around 13,000 species, an impressive attempt at describing the logic of life. As he so modestly put it, God created, Linnaeus organised. Although Charles Darwin is often credited with drawing the first tree of life with his 1830s sketch, the honour should really go to French nobleman, schoolteacher and priest Augustin Augier. His Arbre Botanique, published in 1801, represents the relationships of plants in the shape of a literal as well as a metaphorical tree, demonstrating the beauty and perfect order of divine creation as Augier saw it. A few years later, in 1809, his compatriot, the zoologist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, drew the first family tree of animals. But it was Darwin who really cemented the idea of the tree of life as a way of describing the evolutionary relationships between species and how one might evolve from another. In Origin of Species, he writes, The affinities of all the beings of the same class have sometimes been represented by a great tree, I believe this simile largely speaks the truth. The green and budding twigs may represent existing species, and those produced during each former year may represent the long succession of extinct species. The limbs divided into great branches, and these into lesser and lesser branches, were themselves, once when the tree was small, budding twigs. And this connection of the former and present buds by ramifying branches may well represent the classification of all extinct and living species in groups subordinate to groups. However, Darwin's tree of life didn't contain any actual existing species, just theoretical relatives. He left it to others to try and draw up family trees capturing the relationships between real-life organisms, which we now refer to as phylogenetic trees. Ernst Haeckel, a German zoologist and accomplished artist, drew one of the most famous examples. A mighty oak with simple organisms like bacteria at the bottom of the tree and humans at the top. He even labelled his diagram Pedigree of Man, because of course men are the pinnacle of evolution. Although he was a big fan of Darwin, Haeckel's tree of life didn't exactly follow Darwinian principles. For a start, he included living species as internal branches of the tree, when those should only be extinct ancestors, with living relatives out on the twiggy tips. Other scientists of the time did produce phylogenetic trees that fitted Darwin's principles better. But perhaps because of their comparative lack of artistic prowess, they're often overlooked. As so often in science, having good PR does help. Scientists continued drawing and redrawing the tree of life and sections within it, basing them on hypothesised evolutionary relationships inferred from the shared characteristics that they could see between species. For Darwin, this was a vindication of his ideas, and in 1857 he sent a letter to his fellow evolutionist Thomas Huxley, in which he writes, The time will come, I believe, though I shall not live to see it, when we shall have very fairly true genealogical trees of each great kingdom of nature. 
As the science of genetics emerged throughout the 20th century, gathering pace with the invention of DNA sequencing in the late 1970s and exponentially exploding with the advent of computer-based analysis or bioinformatics in the 1990s, it started to look like Darwin's prediction was coming true. Scientists can now compare DNA sequences across thousands of species to see how they're related and calculate the evolutionary distance between them. And the increasing ability to sequence and analyse DNA from ancient specimens is opening a genetic window into the past. But with all this progress comes a new problem. What exactly is a species anyway? Biologists have been grappling with the question, what is a species, for centuries. For Linnaeus, who believed that God created all species and that they were fixed, different species could be teased apart by looking for distinctive physical characteristics. Although even he struggled with drawing the line in some cases, asking, Is the plant Thalactrum lucidum sufficiently distinct from Thalactrum flavum? It seems to me a daughter of time. In 1856, Darwin wrote to his closest friend, Joseph Hooker, saying, It is really laughable to see what different ideas are prominent in various naturalists' minds when they speak of species. In some, resemblance is everything, and descent of little weight. In some, resemblance seems to go for nothing, and creation the reigning idea. In some, descent is the key. In some, sterility an unfailing test. With others, it is not worth a farthing. It all comes, I believe, from trying to define the undefinable. As an attempt to nail down some definitions, there have been a number of ideas put forward as to what makes a species a species. One of them, the biological species concept, suggests that organisms are the same species if they can interbreed and produce fertile offspring, and different species if they can't. But lions and tigers, which are separated by geography, genetics and three million or more years of evolution, can interbreed to produce ligers, which are fertile 50% of the time. And then there are cryptic species, organisms that look for all the world as if they're the same species, but can't or don't actually get down to it and breed with each other. All the living things on Earth right now are caught in the act of evolution. And evolution is messy. It isn't a directed process, neatly creating precise species boundaries according to some celestial taxonomy. There's a fair bit of fuzziness around the edges. A biological grey zone where defining two animals as different or the same species, such as tigers and lions, is difficult, even if they appear to be physically distinct. In 2016, French researcher Camille Roux and his team attempted to shed some light on this grey zone, comparing the genomes of 61 pairs of animal populations with varying levels of difference between them, from very simple organisms like mollusks and worms to mice, hares and monkeys. Some pairs were classified as distinct species, according to conventional taxonomy, while others were classed as subspecies of each other. They found that, regardless of the animal or where they lived, there was around 0.5-2% to of difference in the genomes of each pair. While this isn't a hard and fast rule, less than 0.5% difference and you're the same species, more than 2% difference and you're different, the study does help to set some parameters on the biological species concept. Now that biologists can peer into the genomes of anything that they can throw through a DNA sequencer, the tree of life has gone through a dramatic phase of vibrant, vigorous growth. 
Some of the new additions are previously unknown species that have been discovered for the very first time. Others are examples of what's known as the Lazarus effect, where a species that was thought to be extinct is found very much alive and well. For example, the missing, presumed extinct rock rat and an entirely new species of rabbit turned up being sold as food in a village market in Laos. However, many others have been created by splitting one existing species into two, or even more, something known as taxonomic inflation. Hundreds of new species of mammal have been discovered, or at least labelled, since 1993, including the reclassification of African elephants into two species, while the neotropical skipper butterfly has been regrouped into ten. This is particularly important for very small organisms that might not have a lot of physical characteristics for taxonomists to go on. My favourite are placozoa, tiny sea creatures that are little more than a ball of cells. Their lack of distinguishing features has meant that they've spent the past century lumped into a single species, Trichoplax adherens. But when a team of German researchers compared the genomes of Placozoa around the world, they found one population that was so different that there was no option but to classify it as an entirely new species, even though it looks exactly the same as all the rest. Because these animals were found in the Ho-Chung River in Hong Kong, they were named Hoilungia hongkongensis, which translates as Hong Kong Sea Dragon. And just like the shape-shifting mythological Chinese Dragon King, Placozoans can easily change their shape too. Instead of the majestic oak envisioned by Heckel and his ilk in the 1800s, the Tree of Life now resembles a bizarre and somewhat unruly bush, constantly growing as more genetic data come to light. Projects like the Darwin Tree of Life and Earth Biogenome, aiming to sequence all life on Earth, are only adding to it. And rather than being at the top of the tree, humans are lost somewhere in the thicket. Just a tiny twig among the exuberant diversity of life on Earth. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Every day, everywhere, species are going extinct. The last organism of its kind finally dies and a twig on the tree of life comes to an end. While it's hard to put a precise number on it, some experts think that there are between 20 and 150 plant and animal extinctions every single day. But although the exact numbers are contested, partly because it's incredibly hard to figure out exactly how many species are out there in the world, and exactly when any one of them might have popped off this mortal coil for good, it's generally held that current extinction rates are many times higher than what might be expected. And many of these vanishings are the result of human action. One obvious solution is to invest in conservation, preserving precious habitats and protecting populations on the brink of death. But what about the ones that have already gone? Could we bring them back? Many people will be familiar with the science of de-extinction from Jurassic Park, the infamous Steven Spielberg film franchise based on a novel by Michael Crichton. 
Alas, the fictional premise of resurrecting dinosaurs from DNA in blood cells preserved in mosquitoes trapped in amber is very unlikely to ever happen. Not least because the oldest DNA ever found is around a million years old, and the youngest dinos date back 66 million. Bring things closer to the present, however, and science fiction starts to become science fact. Alberto Fernandez Arias has seen his favourite species, the Bucardo, go extinct not once, but twice. These large mountain goats inhabited the Pyrenees for thousands of years until hunting sent their numbers plummeting. And as head of the hunting, fishing and wetland department in northern Spain, it fell to Fernandez Arias to protect them. Despite his best efforts, by the year 2000 there was just one Bucardo left, a female that he and his team had named Celia. Her demise, and the extinction of her entire species, was announced by the sad beep from her radio collar as she was crushed by a falling tree. But buried deep in their laboratory freezer was the chance for Celia to live again. Inspired by the recent successful birth of Dolly the sheep, the first mammal cloned from an adult cell, Fernandez Arias had gathered a sample of Celia's cells nine months before her death, in the hope of resurrecting her species one day in the future. Using a similar technique that Ian Wilmot and his team at the Roslyn Institute in Scotland employed to make Dolly, which we talked about in episode 23, the Spanish team injected DNA from Celia cells into goat eggs that had been emptied of their own DNA, then kick-started them into dividing and starting the process of making an embryo. The next step was to implant these tiny balls of cells into a surrogate mother animal, and it's here that things got tricky. Whereas Wilmot and his team could use sheep as surrogate mothers for growing their cloned lambs, obviously there are no more mums left for a species that has gone extinct. First, Fernandez Arias tried to implant his cloned Bocado embryos into domestic goats, but their wombs didn't nourish the growing foetuses properly, and every attempt resulted in a miscarriage. Instead, he had to breed hybrid species by crossing goats with a close relative of the Bocado, the Ibex, and then implanting the embryonic clones into them instead. But by 2003, everything was in place for the Bocado's return. After 57 egg implantations, 7 pregnancies and 6 miscarriages, the first Bocado in three years came into the world by caesarean section and was quickly swept up into Fernandez Arias's eager waiting arms. Tragically, his joy at seeing his beloved mountain goat brought back from extinction was short-lived. Within a matter of minutes, the Bocado was extinct once more. Science writer Carl Zimmer describes the painful scene in his feature in National Geographic. As Fernandez Arias held the newborn Bocado in his arms, he could see that she was struggling to take in air, her tongue jutting grotesquely out of her mouth. Despite the efforts to help her breathe, after a mere ten minutes, Celia's clone died. A necropsy later revealed that one of her lungs had grown a gigantic extra lobe, as solid as a piece of liver. There was nothing anyone could have done. Fernandez Arias is still trying to bring back his beloved mountain goats, and cloning techniques have come on leaps and bounds since he first started cloning Celia's cells back in 2003. Even so, using cloning to resurrect extinct animals from frozen cells is fraught with difficulty. 
Kickstarting cell division requires an electric shock, which doesn't always work. There can be incompatibilities between egg and donor DNA, as well as difficulties with implantation and development in the womb. And even when everything does work and a pregnancy goes to term, the resulting animals often have health problems. One way around this is to use induced pluripotent stem cells, or IPS cells, which were first developed by Nobel Prize-winning Japanese scientist Shinya Yamanaka in 2006. Rather than going to all the trouble of generating embryonic cells by taking the DNA out of an adult cell and putting it into an egg, it's now possible to turn an adult cell back into an embryonic one by adding a cocktail of special reprogramming molecules. These IPS cells can be used to generate an embryo or even turned into eggs and sperm to create a new animal. The technique hasn't yet been used to resurrect an extinct species, but it has been used to clone mice and could one day be used to convert stored adult cells from extinct species into sperm, eggs or even embryos. But while they've got a lot of potential, using cloning techniques and IPS cells to bring animals back from extinction relies on having a stash of intact frozen cells – something that simply doesn't exist for most of the species we've lost from the world, from woolly mammoths to passenger pigeons, T-Rex to Elvis Presley. So, can we really bring back the king? In 1914, the very last passenger pigeon, known as Martha, died in Cincinnati Zoo. This extinction event would have seemed inconceivable to American naturalist John James Audubon, who a century earlier had described a migrating flock of passenger pigeons joining him on his journey along the Ohio River to Louisville. The air was literally filled with pigeons, he writes. The light of the noonday was obscured as by an eclipse. The dung fell in spots, not unlike melting flakes of snow. And the continued buzz of wings had a tendency to lull my senses to repose. The flock passed overhead for three whole days, rousing the good citizens of Louisville to arms to shoot as many of the birds as possible. Yet this incredible flying bounty couldn't last forever. Thanks to excessive hunting and shrinking of their natural forest habitats, by 1900 the last wild passenger pigeon met its maker at the hands of a young boy with a BB gun, with Martha's death in captivity over a decade later marking the species' final demise. A century later, and the passenger pigeon is finally making a comeback. And not just because someone really, really loves birds. The dense migratory flocks of passenger pigeons in the past are thought to have served a vital role in maintaining forest ecosystems by eating, pooping and leaving, so their restoration could help to stabilise and restore fragile woodlands. Unfortunately, there are no samples of intact cells from Martha or any other passenger pigeon for cloning. Instead, the team working on bringing back her species are taking a different approach, cobbling together bits of available passenger pigeon DNA and DNA from living pigeon relatives to create a genome that represents the extinct species. Currently, DNA has been sequenced from 37 different passenger pigeon samples, including two whole genomes. Work is now underway to create pigeons that carry genetic engineering tools in their DNA to carry out the cutting and pasting required to splice in this ancestral DNA into the modern pigeon genome, with the aim of hatching the first of a new generation of rebooted passenger pigeons by 2025. Other scientists have set their sights on a much bigger prize, the woolly mammoth. 
Again, this isn't just because mammoths are awesome, although they are. When mammoths last roamed the Earth, they helped to maintain grasslands in the frozen north. Bringing them back to the Arctic tundra could support biodiversity and allow deeper freezing during winter months and less melting during the summer. In turn, this would preserve the Arctic habitat and reduce the release of greenhouse gases. The mammoth has been extinct for around 3,600 years, and there are samples of mammoth DNA preserved in the natural deep freeze of its ancient homeland. It also has a very close living relative that shares around 99.96% of its DNA, and that's the Asian elephant. Scientists at Harvard University, led by George Church, are attempting to use gene editing techniques to take elephant DNA and engineer in mammoth genetic traits, like a woolly coat and the ability to live in a cold climate. This includes genetic variations for altered haemoglobin, that's the molecule that carries oxygen around in the bloodstream, along with extra hair and fat. So far, Church and his team have managed to engineer some of these mammoth genes into elephant cells growing in the lab, although we are still a long way from seeing these mighty beasts roaming the Arctic Circle once more. Scaling up further still, the ultimate prize could be to resurrect dinosaurs a la Jurassic Park. But although scientists found what looks a lot like red blood cells in a fossilised dinosaur bone in 2015, there was no DNA. And even if it did turn out to be possible to get hold of dinosaur DNA, de-extinction will be much more difficult, as dinosaurs don't have such close living relatives as the passenger pigeon or the woolly mammoth. Reverse engineering 66 million years of evolution is probably almost impossible. And even if you did manage to assemble a full dinosaur genome, good luck finding a suitable surrogate. Closer to home, George Church has also discussed bringing back our own human ancestors, the Neanderthals, from extinction using this method. Parts of the Neanderthal genome exist in our own human genome, while other bits have been recovered from ancient bones. However, we don't have anything resembling a full Neanderthal genome right now. And that's not really the biggest problem with this approach to bringing long-dead species back to life. As well as the technical issues surrounding de-extinction, there are also philosophical ones. Does gluing bits of mammoth DNA into their modern-day relatives really recreate the species? Or are these creatures just hairy, fat, cold-resistant elephants? And what about the ethics of bringing back long-vanished species into a world that may have changed dramatically since they were last alive? More broadly, we don't fully understand the implications of de-extinction. Bringing these long-lost animals back doesn't end when they're born or hatched. They need an environment and an ecosystem that can support them, which may be long gone in some cases. They also need protecting from harm, whether from humans, habitat destruction or climate change. And there's also the issue of disease. For example, what happens when a woolly mammoth doesn't have its native gut bacteria or the parasites that it had in prehistoric times? So, is de-extinction really worth it? Is there any point in bringing animals back just for them to quickly die out again? Listening to Alberto Fernandez Arias talk about his beloved bocados, it's undoubtedly worth all the effort to him to see these beautiful goats back in the wild. Based on his experiences with cloning from frozen cells, it's arguable that the main scientific focus should be on recently extinct creatures that are easier to bring back could realistically recover in an environment that's similar to the one they left behind. 
It's here where I have my doubts about the benefits of resurrecting Neanderthals. Most scientists agree that Neanderthals would not be well suited to surviving in the modern world. And I certainly would be ethically uncomfortable with the idea of experimenting on a hominin species so closely related to our own. However, for the sake of the planet and our own survival as a species, it might be worth trying to bring back animals that can support ecosystems and perform functions that no other animal does, like the passenger pigeon or even the woolly mammoth. Alternatively, rather than thinking about wholesale de-extinction, we could look into the genomes of ancestral species for specific genes and variants that might be useful for survival and conservation in the modern world. And of course, Maybe we could put some of that attention and effort towards stopping species going extinct in the first place. That's all for now. Next time we're reporting back from the Genetic Society's final event of its centenary year. That's a celebratory scientific meeting in Edinburgh featuring prominent scientists with a connection to the city, held together with the Roslin Institute and the Institute of Evolutionary Biology at the University of Edinburgh, which are also celebrating centenary milestones. And, whiskey permitting, I may even bring you a sneak peek from a special genetics-themed Kaylee. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip, and please, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference, and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani, with additional research by Emily Nordvang, and it's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time... Goodbye.